Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 1, English Teacher's Choice of Texts, with Dr Judith Neen. Welcome along everyone to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching and we have a special guest, um, a friend of the podcast as we've uh, called her before, who is back um, and I'd like to extend a very warm podcast welcome to Dr Judith Neen. Dr Judith Neen, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you Emma. It's very good to be back here again. I mean, should I acknowledge that you've got a, an extra specially large grin on your face at this moment in time? <laughs> I don't know whether you want to disclose where that grin is coming from I didn't realize I was going around with a grin on my face permanently but uh, but yes I am I am about to take early retirement so uh, I I add that that little bit of early on there as well it's very important so um we we have to confess that we are um capitalizing on the final days that you have with us on the program of Cardiff Met and I probably should, should tell our listeners that we are recording now at the beginning of July 2021 um, so we've nabbed you, Judith, because you've got some, you're speaking to us with your subject hat on today and you've, you've given us some really interesting episodes based on your research into uh, the expressive arts area of learning and experience and working with pioneers, some fascinating stuff. But I wonder, are you, are you in your kind of comfortable, homely place now talking to us about your, your research within the discipline of secondary English? Yeah, definitely. Um, I have done some really interesting research uh, over the past couple of years in particular, but this is the one that uh, I feel most comfortable with and the one where I, I probably feel most strongly about as well because it's it's something that's very important to me. So, yeah. Well, we're really looking forward to getting to um, the details on this. And it's worth mentioning that you were principal investigator um, for this research project. But um, before you tell us uh, what you wanted to investigate, I would imagine you're probably going to want to acknowledge that you were part of a bigger team on this. Yes, I have had an informal network for a number of years with other course leaders, other ITE course leaders. Um, So from Exeter University, Bristol University, Aberystwyth, Bath Spa and UWE, the University of West of England, of course. And we get together regularly as course leaders, which is quite refreshing in what could be a competitive environment within education to get together with your competitors to share your experiences. So this research project was undertaken as a team, so a multi-university research team, uh, with us all uh, participating. But yes, I, I was I took on the role of of lead lead researcher or investigator, if you like. And this piece of work you did is on that vexed subject of what English teachers choose to teach in the classroom. I mean, this is a really interesting one because so many kind of knotty questions coincide in this. I've got not entirely fond memories of my own English lessons, if I'm perfectly <laughs> honest. I mean, it, it was uh, it, it, the, t- the choice of text, the kind of gender balance in the class made it quite a difficult experience. I remember from my own school teaching experience, the English department actually experimenting with separate boys and girls 
classes at GCSE. And of course, now you've got over in England this big political move about, you know, the best that has been thought and said and all of this idea of the canon and, and you know, what works we should teach the pupils. So it's an interesting one, isn't it? And, and I suppose what you've got 30 copies of in the cupboard is almost the least of the considerations when you're choosing. So uh, what, what did you what were you hoping to find out with this piece of research? Um, we were just interested to find out actually what was being taught. Uh, obviously, as experienced uh, teachers and having um, quite a, a, a past within secondary teaching, we had an idea of what was being taught, uh, but we weren't sure. And, and Tom, you've alluded to the fact that there are lots of influences on English teaching, uh, not the least of which are things like um, uh, political um I, was I going to say interference there? But, uh, <laughs> the, the, you know, we only have to think back to the likes of, of Michael Gove um, and um, his influence on what has been taught and not taught and of mice and men coming off set book lists and things like that. Uh, so there were, there's a lot of influences on uh, English teaching. And it, some of it comes from the subject of English itself. You, you mentioned a canon. Uh, um, there is uh, a canon of literature out there. I probably ought to have those, you know, the, using my fingers as inverted commas there, a, a canon. And so we wanted to know, actually, what are English teachers teaching? Um, and so we started with a very simple question which is just that. And it was a very open question as well. And um, so we didn't have a view of what we um, thought was going to come out of it. And we were just genuinely interested. And it's, it's quite a nice way of doing research, actually, of just asking a very simple, straightforward question of what is being taught uh, within schools. And for those unfamiliar with the curriculum here in Wales and England, because it's spanned both of those um, of the home nations, you chose a particular key stage or age range um, for this research. Can you tell us what that was and why you stuck to that age range? Okay, yes, we did choose key stage three, which is uh, pupils aged 11 to 14 years. And the reason why we chose that is because uh, post-14, students in school are subject to exam boards and the texts that are chosen by exam boards. Um, So teachers have little flexibility. But with Key Stage 3, they are the early years of secondary school and teachers should have uh, some influence or quite a lot of influence really over what is actually being taught um, so it's the, the last opportunity, if you like, for teachers to have uh, an influence with the texts that they want to teach. Uh, so that was the that was the thinking behind it. So you'd established kind of what you wanted to ask. And I suppose the next question is, how did you want to find out that information? What methods did you think were the best sort of tools for finding out the information? And and, um, and why did you choose those tools in particular? Okay, so we chose two main tools. Uh, first of all, we chose a survey 
for English teachers. And we conducted this as an online survey uh, because uh, an online survey is a good way of getting to as many people as possible. Uh, and we used a, a program called Qualtrics and we, we sent that out. And we, we sent it out to our partnership schools. So as I said earlier, we are all part of ITE partnerships. So we made good use of those partnerships in the southwest of England and in Wales, and we sent out the survey to them. Now, one thing I haven't mentioned is that this uh, research was funded research by the UKLA, so that's the Literacy Association in the, uh, in the UK, and they funded us to the tune of £3,000 and gave us a grant to do that. And they were a very useful partner to have because they also sent this survey out to other schools. So as well as getting responses from schools in the southwest and from Wales, we got them from all over the country. And indeed, we also got responses from abroad because the UK LA has has members abroad as well. So that was the first thing that we did. And we generally just asked uh, teachers what texts they were teaching. Uh, in order to stimulate uh, their responses, we had some pre-populated lists of texts that we, we know are popular within school. And we asked them about novels, we asked them about poetry, and also about the plays that are being taught in school. We asked them on other areas too, about how they organised their teaching. Um, so, for example, if they were in mixed ability groups or setted, we asked them if they taught books as whole texts or as extracts. And we asked them how long they took to teach these texts, how many weeks, for example. So that was the, the first thing that we did. Um, we also asked them for um, any other texts that weren't in the pre-populated lists. And um, we got some really interesting data back from that too. So the first method was that. The second method we followed up with were interviews with some selected teachers from across the southwest and Wales region. And we chose teachers who represented a range of different types of school uh, within the, these regions. And we, we did um, semi-structured interviews with them. So we all knew the areas. Because there's so many researchers on this, we had six of us researching. Um, I think actually it was seven of us researching, sorry, on this. And so we wanted, we had to have some structure to it, some certain questions that we were asking about. So we wanted to find out in the interviews more about the choices that were being made and things like their philosophy of teaching literature and the, the influences on them and on those choices as well. So we had uh, nine interviews, nine detailed interviews with, with teachers as well. And this has been published in Nate's 
journal or, or magazine teaching English um, in issue 23, if anyone wants to see it. You've got an enormous amount of information obviously coming in from here, but, but the real eye-catching bit, I suppose, is the league tables, the league tables of texts. Um, and I suppose resisting the urge to do this in the form of a kind of radio chart show, were there, <laughs> were there any particular kind of standout items in, in those league tables for pros that, that you spotted or, or a particularly noteworthy or interesting, whether for good or bad reasons? Okay, that's, uh, yes, let's get into the heart of it. We were, um, what we did was we, we ranked the texts according to their popularity with schools. And we ranked novels, we ranked poetry, and we ranked uh, plays as well. Uh, And we divided them up into year seven, year eight, year nine. And there were some quite striking things that that came out. And first of all, um, one of the most striking things was, if we take year seven, for example, only out of the, the top ten there, only one of the authors is a female author. Okay, and that was J.K. Rowling and uh, the Harry Potter series. All the other authors were male authors, the the likes of Sackham or Pergo, um, etc. And uh, perhaps more shockingly, all of the protagonists in those novels were male protagonists. And the, the picture is very similar for the other years. It's not quite as extreme for year eight. And year nine, we do have um, pro- uh, about three author- three female authors coming in for year eight and nine. And this really made us think about the diet that we are giving to young people and the messages that we are giving to them. So if you are uh, an 11-year-old girl going through the typical diet of literature being taught in the classroom, you'll find that the exciting characters, the characters having the fun in those novels, the characters taking the decisions, are the male characters. And if you look across, we won't have time today, but if you look across a typical diet, uh, you will find that it, it's, it's duplicated across poetry, and across the plays, and it's duplicated across the years. Now, this is interesting because um, am I wrong in thinking that English has tended to have a reputation of the subject as being slightly more girl-friendly than boy-friendly, and yet we've got this interesting kind of (laughs) situation with the text. Is this this an overreaction too far, do you think, by by subject departments, or or, or have they not even thought, thought it through to that extent? I think you might be right, yes. It's been something which has been uh, on English teachers' minds for a long time. Uh, So if I go back to when I was in the classroom, a very careful consideration was engaging boys within English uh, in particular. A A lot of the texts are designed, I think, to appeal to boys and to engage boys. So if you look at things like Harry Potter and things like Warhorse, uh, etc. But a lot of them are traditional texts as well. So I think 
teachers are trying to bring in traditional texts like A Christmas Carol, like Animal Farm. Actually, Animal Farm is really difficult to say whether you've got whether you've got male or or female protagonists <laughs> if we're talking animals, I suppose. Um, but uh, so teachers are juggling a number of things here. Uh, and I think you may be right in suggesting that it's something that's gone too far, or possibly it's that we've we've lost sight of the overall picture of the diet that we are giving to young people, and that was part of the outcome, probably, which we'll get onto uh, later of, of thinking about that diet and, and what we're getting from it. So, now, what is the boy in the striped pajamas doing at the top of year seven by a by a little bit, but romping ahead in year eight, absolutely way out in front? Now, we've we've discussed this, haven't we, in the past, and, and we've discussed it with Kat Kirkland, who's been on the podcast before from the Holocaust Educational Trust. She's got real problems with that book. That's that's kind of quite a problematic text, and yet there it is in position in in two out of three of the years it's it's really interesting and and if I, if I confess that many years ago when this book first came out I was writing for Oxford University Press and they used to send me books out to see my opinion of whether they would be worthwhile working in the classroom or not and I sent my opinion back to Oxford University Press and said no this one won't work uh, I don't like this text uh, and they said, Judith, uh, I think you might be wrong there. And, <laughs> and they certainly were, because it's proved to be by far the most popular text in year seven and eight. And this is not just in our survey. I know uh, there have been other surveys that have gone on, which have shown that it's a very popular text. Uh, and it is a problematic text. And it's a problematic text for what you've already uh, hinted at, which is... As uh, a piece of uh, historical fiction, it goes off the rails. It doesn't present us with a picture of what would have actually happened, which is why um, very often historians in school don't like this text, whereas English teachers do. And it is problematic and it's uh, it's one that I I don't particularly like teaching in school I've not taught it in school uh, because um, I don't like it as a work of literature I have to say because it's overly naive uh, the picture that's presented Uh, but as I say historians don't like it because uh, there are so many errors in it from a historical point of view And so the likes of Kat Kirkland with the uh, Holocaust Educational Trust definitely don't like it because it is perceived as a historical text. And this is where a lot of young people are getting their view of the Holocaust within it. So, but in, in order to change that, it's very difficult to change that when so many schools, uh, they will teach it right across a year group and they've got masses of stocks in the stockroom of the boy in the striped pyjamas. So it's actually quite difficult to shift uh, shift away from that. It, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there's another kind of particular particularity that comes through w- with regard to a point you made earlier about uh, Gove sort of um, removing American authors from um, the canon, I use in inverted commas. Um, so you've got texts such as of mice and men appearing top of the list for year nine and part of me you know the kind of political 
sort of person in me is thinking is was that you know the English teachers raging against Gove there and going yes we're going to teach it anyway or was there far more practical <laughs> rationale for that and they had these set texts that they they still needed to use in their stocks it, it's both it's both and it's also English teachers recognize it as a good piece of literature uh, it works really well in the classroom it's a short novel it has really accessible themes. It has interesting characters, etc. So English teachers enjoy teaching it. It has challenging themes. It makes us look at diversity, for example, uh, within a novel. Uh, but yes, I think there's also that pragmatic reason of using what you've got stocks of within the classroom. Obviously, within Wales, it's remained on a set book list. It's only within England that uh, Gove decided that we were going to have uh, British and, and Irish literature uh, rather than literature in the English language, which was rather infuriating because we have the benefit, this wonderful benefit of working within a language which is probably the closest thing to a global language, you know, musicians and mathematicians might uh, disagree with me there, but you know, the English language is a fantastic language to work with. So you have the benefit of uh, looking at literature in the English language. And uh, Michael Gove decided, no, um, I'm getting political again, aren't I here? I'm going to say, oh, go, <laughs> <roll back. laughs> go for it, I say. <laughs> and, um, and said, no, we're just going to have um, British uh, and, 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 and Irish as well. He allowed Irish to come in as well. Now, I know that Emma will be very interested in talking about the drama side of things. You did talk about drama, but just a kind of quick, quick detour into the poetry bit. I mean, this is interesting, isn't it? Because you've got an even more male dominated scene, if anything, in the poetry tables. But you've also got some quite sad quotes, I suppose, in your in your bigger article, you know, the teachers are just saying they don't like teaching it. They're off, they're, you know, they're on a loser to start with. What is it that they say? You know, you're always off on a negative for the poetry. And so, I mean, what's going on here? Are they are they just, is, is this a relatively small part of their work? Um, so, so they don't have the chance to kind of really think through the variety here or what? I mean, it, it's, it's a bit of a shame if poetry is quite such a Cinderella part of the subject. It is, isn't it? It's, um, it's a, 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 I suppose, a consequence of a number of things. Um, but first of all, it's a consequence of the fact that poetry uh, is not perceived as accessible by the students, as accessible as a novel, for example. If you're reading something like Of Mice and Men in the classroom, it's very easy to engage the students to get them interested in it. Uh, it's not as easy very often with poetry. So it's a more difficult job for, for the English teacher. The English teachers also tend to look, if, if we look at the, the poetry um, the, the main poem that comes out top is Dulcet Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen. That's sort of taught way above anything else. So we've gone for, for war poetry. Uh, and poetry does tend to be taught in themes. And it's interesting, actually, going back to, to, to themes which might appeal to different groups. So you have war and conflict potentially appealing to boys more. I don't know. But um, it's so it's perceived as as more difficult, Tom. But it also it's 
it takes a lesser part of the curriculum than the novels do it which which is a, a great shame because if you're talking about literature being the best of what a language can offer and uh, novels being you know a good part of that and, and poetry is even more so poetry is really looking at the manipulation of and creativity with language in a way that other literature isn't so it's something um, in terms of what we would we would like school to think that schools can do after having done this survey is is to look at what they are teaching and and whether they are teaching poetry in a way that's accessible and that might mean not going back to old poetry there's some fantastic modern contemporary poetry and contemporary poets out there and so you know encouraging and some of the schools are doing this they are looking for more modern poetry Um, this was really striking i thought about the um the, the the lack of 21st century poems in, in the lists for, for poetry in particular, but also that you found that there was a similar issue around male protagonist, protagonists in poems and the depiction of women in poems. And again, you wonder if we've not got enough 21st century poetry, then representation, diversity, different voices, you know, all of these things that are very, very topical. Um, and there's certainly, you know, I, I'm sure informing curriculum decisions at, at the moment um, are, you know, are just not coming through in, in, in the lists that we've got there through your research. Yeah, schools are hampered uh, by budgets, aren't they? Uh, but poetry is one of the easier things to deal with. Uh, now I might get my knuckles wrapped for this with talking about photocopying and things, but lots of schools do photocopy poetry, but it is a shorter form uh, of literature, so it should be easier to get contemporary poetry into the curriculum and to open that up to young people. Now, of course, as a drama specialist, uh, I was very, very interested in your findings around the texts uh, coming under the drama category. Um, Again, saddened to see that there was a lot of... um, Not saddened to see, because I do love Shakespeare, but, you know, Shakespeare has the monopoly on a lot of these lists, less so um, in year nine. But was there... Before I I, I talk about what I found striking about it, was there anything that that you found striking um, from from these lists and the perspectives of of the teachers to coincide with those lists? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Shakespeare is the man um, for... um, for plays in Key Stage 3. Um, and uh, I've got the list in front of me here of Year 7, for example. And out of those top 10 uh, plays, eight of them are Shakespeare. Uh, two of them are modern ones, but they're adaptations. One's an adaptation of Frankenstein, the other one's an adaptation of Dracula. So uh, with it for year seven, um, in the top 10 only, um, they are not getting any uh, modern drama and benefiting from that. And I think this, uh, we are missing a trick on doing this uh, because those of us who have used plays in the classroom, they're extremely successful at engaging young people. 
plays are one way of getting, really getting that literature into the mouths of young people. They can become the characters when you read through a play with young people. Uh, it allows them to enter the world of literature like no other form of literature. And I'm sure you agree with this, Emma. <laughs> I, I really do agree. I think there are a number of things in this. I think there's an open invitation for more collaborative work between drama and English practitioners. Um, I think it's really useful for drama practitioners to know that at Key Stage 3 there is a lack um, of modern contemporary playwrights in the diet of Key Stage 3 pupils and therefore really important to look across the key history curriculum for um, for drama and English. The other thing I found fascinating was that you'd reported on the time spent or the the percentage of um, the text that was covered, and the stark thing that came through. And this was across prose, poetry, and drama. And for drama, it was very common that only 50% of the text would be taught. So it was very often done through extracts and, you know, easier, maybe, arguably, sometimes easy to do with with, um, play texts through use of key scenes you can maybe fill in the gaps with um with live theater productions that you've got um on film um but it was very very interesting and i wondered if if you could sort of illuminate what was kind of under what was underlying that um that that huge drop in coverage yeah i mean it's another one of those simple questions that we asked is how long do you spend on uh, teaching a text and uh, do you teach the text as a whole text or as an extract Uh, and they're both connected of course and they teach uh, the the main unit of time for teaching anything in English is six to eight weeks and and those of you who are teaching within the UK will know why that is it's half termly units so the uh, the timing of a text, the organisation of the teaching and study of that text is dictated not by the needs of the text uh, or by the needs of English study, but by the structure of the school year. And one of the things uh, that is a challenge to us as English teachers is, is that the right way to go about it? Because actually... It's very difficult. If we look at the, the 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 number one play for year seven is A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's a fantastic play. It's got lots of different elements, lots of stories, lots of ways in which we can engage young people, lots of things to explore. But to be able to explore that in six weeks uh, is impossible. And that's why teachers go for, for extracts. And that means that you just get hints of things. So, yeah, I think it's a it is a huge, big challenge to us to actually think, is there a different way of organising this? Can we look at literature and the teaching of literature and what's needed by it in a different way so that we uh, are not limited, but we look at the opportunities that a school year offer us? I mean, there's an open hand invitation there for English and drama teachers to cover the text simultaneously and make sure there's full coverage and it benefits everyone I think there because the students will be coming to the drama sessions having you know looked in depth because traditionally English 
uh, lessons are are more frequent uh, uh, on a weekly basis than drama lessons you know there could be some really rich opportunities there for for teaching and learning and more comprehensive coverage of play texts that's just one sort of opportunity that rises for me here absolutely absolutely I mean the other thing to bear in mind and I suppose is the question is why does Shakespeare appear so heavily uh, within all year groups and the reason for that is because Shakespeare is the only named author on the national curriculum and so we've gone from a state when when I first came into teaching uh, which was when the national curriculum was first coming in in England and Wales That was the first time that Shakespeare was put on the national curriculum. Before that, schools didn't have to teach Shakespeare. And so what we've come through is a period where Shakespeare, there have been various iterations of the national curriculum uh, with various recommended or not recommended authors, etc. But we've come through to a stage in Wales where actually English teachers are now being told you study what you think is right for you. So it will be very interesting to see whether schools do open up to other works of literature. Please keep Shakespeare there as well. I've written a lot on Shakespeare (laughs) over the years, and thus I'm a a big proponent of teaching Shakespeare. Um, And and I wouldn't propose what happened in in my school days, which was um, they didn't, in my, my comprehensive school in Liverpool, they didn't dare teach anybody until you were absolutely uh, after age 16 Shakespeare. Uh, I think it's great having Shakespeare. But, oh gosh, there are so many good contemporary playwrights out there. Let's bring bring some of that in and share it. And I think you're absolutely right, Emma. Uh, the idea of working uh, together on that makes absolute sense. I've just been sitting here trying to make sense of this um, through thinking about the parallels with my own subject and I may be about to ask one of my one of my sort of trademark awful questions here Judah so brace yourself a little bit I've, I've seen literature which suggests that uh, teachers values teachers beliefs about what should be taught and how it should be taught are very strongly influenced by their own experiences at that top level of their education so that university end of their education And we know there's a big body of literature in the music world which says lots of music teachers are classically trained and their values come from the world of classical music and there is a gap between those values and the values of the pupils which are more based often around pop music. And there's been big efforts in the music kind of side of things to try and close that gap a little bit, come up with pedagogies which more accurately reflect the way popular musicians work, that kind of thing. I'm just looking at some of the people on this list. You know, I'm thinking Shakespeare, you know, Chaucer, Sir Shelley, Dickens, all of these. Are these the classical music of English literature? And is this a reflection that there might be a similar thing going on in English? Um, is there an awareness of that over on the English side of the fence? Or am I totally barking up the wrong tree? No, you're absolutely right. It's, it's the same principle uh, in action there of um, certain texts uh, which are thought to, to, to be part of the worthy canon that, that should be taught. I mean, it is very interesting that that schools can um, and do look at, at other texts and that beyond the canon. I mean, this idea of a canon, I, sh- I should think it is exactly the same thing in music, Tom, that who decides 
on the canon. Um, one of the things that we haven't spoken about so far, I've spoken about gender, but one of the things we haven't spoken about is diversity within these texts. And the same thing applies, that these texts that we are teaching at the moment do not reflect the uh, different groups within society, uh, ethnicity-wise, and the you know there are just as there are very few female writers, there are very few fem- um, writers of color uh, in these lists, and it, it really is time that that we start to look at. Uh, the diet that we're giving from the point of view of diversity as well. And and who decides these canons? If, within English, without going back into an English literature lesson, uh, we go back to F.R. Leavis, who decided the, the, the canon, him and his wife, uh, Queenie, um, decided the, the canon, you know, of Jane Austen and um, etc. Um, and we need to review that and uh, question where we are getting our ideas from about what uh, is worth teaching, what uh, will help young people engage with the world, understand the complexities of the world that they're in, um, and generally and enjoy literature rather than going back to a view, as you say, of what we've all been taught in the past. Uh, and even some of the more modern texts, um, you know, there's this text by, you'll love this, Emma, Willie Russell in there. <laughs> Blood and, Brothers. And our, 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 yeah, you've got Blood Brothers and you've got Our, our Day, Day Out. Out. Our Day Out being construed as a modern text. Well, that oh. was written an awful long time ago. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a bit of a bugbear for me. And I, I, I'm part of the problem because it was one that I used to teach. And of course, that, you know, when you've got, again, if you've got an abundance of material on how to teach something like that, it it's easy to do that then and maybe that's lazy teaching but you know teachers are time poor but the other thing I found fascinating as well was the idea of texts being easy to teach or being teachable something I found fascinating um was there, there was a nice metaphor which said choosing literature to teach can be like walking a tightrope um but um there was also a really interesting comment that came through from the interview data which was that they'd selected a text i can't remember by whom but it was a it was um i think by ness and they really loved it and they thought that their kids would really enjoy it but then they realized quite quickly that it wasn't sort of a pedagogical text it wasn't easy easy to teach yeah so I'm just thinking for for student teachers who um find themselves in a position where they have the luxury of freedom to choose how do they discern and decide whether uh, you know it's a really difficult choice isn't it to match it to ability to match it to um you know the things that you just talked about in terms of how is it going to challenge and stretch them in terms of its content its form any 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 kind of thoughts on how a a new someone new to making selections might it's a really good question uh, because you're right though as an English teacher very often you're thinking of two different things you're thinking of the texts that you would teach and you're thinking of texts that you can uh, promote to young people for their own personal reading um, and when we when we put this research together, we were thinking of the former, because there are there is quite a bit of research out there already on on helping young people and promoting uh, reading for pleasure, if you like. But the texts that you teach, 
uh, have got to be different. Uh, they've got to have enough within them to engage and be of interest to the young people, but also enough for, we're talking about analysis of, of literature. Uh, so uh, we will look for areas of characterization, of setting and atmosphere and all these different things. But we're also looking for areas like themes that are interesting to look at, themes which will be interesting to young people. So we all know why Romeo and Juliet is taught to year nine, for example, because that's the, the emergent of, emergence of the love interest, isn't it? You know, so it's, it, we know that that's why that's chosen there. But yes, it is, it, it is a, a sort of balancing act. And it's also trying to challenge young people sort of challenging them with literature that they may not come across themselves automatically and literature which is more challenging in its nature as well so it's a little bit more meaty for example uh, which is why we don't want to lose Shakespeare but we just want to um, to add to to what is being taught in terms of drama. Just that little bit that Emma was looking at in your article I noticed they also you say equate more challenging texts with older texts. Uh, I suppose, yes, they're more challenging in terms of the fact that the, the language can be a little bit harder to wrap your head around. But that seems, that seems quite a, quite almost like a quite a one-dimensional view of what gives challenge in a text, just to think, oh, we'll go with something older where they, they you know, the, the sentences are a bit strangely constructed. And, and the resources will be there, Tom, uh, to teach with. So there is a pragmatic element there for the teacher of, uh, I'll teach a Christmas carol. I think Christmas carol is fantastic. Everybody should teach it. But I'm going to teach it because the resources, there's lots of resources online. One of the things that sparked this research, you know, if I go back and, and say the UKLA funded it, well, they also have a, a book award, a children's book award. Uh, and as a university, we were involved in that a couple of years ago. And in those book awards, they put in all some of the best current literature, which is being written by people of colour, by women uh, about different topics, etc. And uh, we worked as a university, but we worked with uh, some of our partner schools on that. And we reviewed those books for the book award. It's a book award where they, the winner is decided by the teachers. Uh, and the teachers had the opportunity to read modern, new, prize-winning literature. And this is the other issue, isn't it? That teachers don't have access generally to these resources. The resources of the literature coming into school and the resource of having the time to look at them. So that's that would probably ad address that, Tom, in, in giving teachers of literature time to research and become more aware of modern literature. Because I suppose it's as well, it's... Um any sort of piece of literature that is produced in modern times will speak to the times. And I, I wonder if, it, it, because that is the case, and sometimes it chimes with issues, topics, that even teachers haven't had time to get their head around in terms of their stance. I'm thinking about 
tricky concepts such as privilege, things that schools that still might be behind on themselves, such as supporting LGBTQ plus pupils. You know, is there a fear maybe that introducing texts like this without a, a more sort of holistic confidence and understanding of the issues and topics and themes that it deals with, is it easier then to kind of go back to the old faithfuls? I don't know. And, and what do we need as a, as a teaching profession to um, have the confidence to introduce things that we don't have all the answers on? That's right. I mean, you're absolutely right that there is a nervousness about uh, some modern fiction is dealing with issues. So it may be dealing with racism, for example. Uh, There's a very popular book at the moment, The Hate You Give, which deals with this American uh, writer. And uh, you open, I suppose there is a fear of opening yourself up as a teacher to to criticism, but there is also a fear uh, of getting criticism from elsewhere, from parents, etc. Um, but uh, like we said earlier, with Kat Kirkland coming in from the Holocaust Educational Trust and helping understanding of dealing with these issues, that's what schools need to do: is to uh, develop their own understanding of the issues uh, that we're dealing with within society as well. So you've produced this really interesting kind of snapshot of the English teaching world. And just with a with a view on our principal audience, I suppose, of, of student teachers and early career teachers, um, as, as you sail towards becoming, you know, Judith Neen Emeritus Programme Leader <laughs> of uh, PGC Secondary English, would you have any words of wisdom or advice for new members of the English teaching profession who might be walking into a very well-established department uh, with a very well-stocked stock cupboard or might be walking into something that's a little bit more of a blank sheet of paper? I mean, I, I, I don't know whether this this study fills you with delight or, or kind of fills you <laughs> with, I don't know, something a bit less, less delightful, but what would you say needs to be the next step um, for those entering the profession? Well, well, that's 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 really interesting. Um, I think um, one of the first things that I do with the students uh, when they start on the course is to get them to articulate their philosophy of teaching English, and then one of the last things I do uh, is to make them revisit that philosophy of teaching English, uh, because English teachers do enter the profession wanting to share their um, a real passion and enthusiasm for literature. So I would say to hold on to those deep-held philosophies of what you know is good, uh, not to be overtaken by some of the rubbish that can come in with the, with the profession. And also keep reading. One of the, the best things that you can do is to look out at the awards lists, the Carnegie Awards list, for example, or the UKLA one, or there are multiple ones going on, and Costa, etc., and keep reading, keep up to date with it, and keep putting forward uh, your views of what would be good to teach uh, within the English classroom, and share that passion with the young people. So don't let that passion go, but to, to don't be uh, overawed by the demands of GCSE and preparing for GCSE and all the other things that make us accountable as teachers. They are important. I'm not saying that they're not. 
but hold on to those that deeply held passion for teaching literature. Thank you very much for that deep discussion, Judith. Really interesting. And I think you've given us a whole wealth of interesting things there. So I'm going to let you off the first of the two homework slots. You've given us lots of things to to read, to consume. So perhaps you might tell us um, something to try, something that you've been uh, maybe advocating in your own practice or doing yourself, something that for our listeners to try. Okay, um, something interesting. It, it's not to do with with reading, but it's as associated with it. And I'm not sure whether this is what you want, but is is to write. Okay, one of the other things that we do on the PGC English course, uh, which I will no longer be part of from September, is to write a lot. And one of the first things that I ask uh, all applicants to do on the course. Um, or, or successful applicants is to write uh, a story and to get in touch with themselves as a writer. Now, it doesn't have to be writing which is uh, fiction in nature. Uh, it can be writing uh, which is autobiographical. It can be getting things off your chest, etc. But it, it's beneficial for us all, I would suggest, uh, psychologically, when when sometimes when students are having difficulty on the course, for example, I will say, write it down. You you were having a conversation with me, but go away and write it down because the actual action of writing it out helps as well. It helps you to clarify your thoughts. It helps you to understand what's going on. Um, so writing can help in in a whole host of ways, but it can really help us understand literature. Language is all intertwined like this and the, the understanding of language. So um, I don't know whether that's what you want, Emma, but that would be <laughs> my I think recommendation. I certainly will be trying that myself um, as I, I have uh, a very irrational fear of writing. So I think <laughs> if, I, uh, if I do that a little bit more, then it might help me with that, uh, <laughs> with that fear. So... Tom, I think we've reached the end of another episode. We have indeed. We've reached the end of an episode and it's a huge thanks to... Well, you're probably top of the league table of podcast guests, actually, Judith. If somebody were to survey us and asked us, who do you get on the podcast most often? I think you'd be top of the list. So thank you so much for all your contributions that you've made. And sad though we are to see you sailing off into the distance, I hope it is a very long and very happy early retirement um, in which you do a lot of reading and writing. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciated uh, this. I think the podcast that you uh, put together here is is fantastic. Um, the amount of time and effort that you and Emma put into this, because this is really not part of your day job. This is additional, uh, but it's a it's a is a fantastic resource. And thanks for inviting me to be part of it. We hope you'll be back soon, even in retirement. Maybe you'll do us that uh, that great pleasure. So. Thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in. We'll be back in your ears in two weeks' time.
You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Dr Judith Neen, now Emeritus Programme Leader, PGC Secondary English here at Cardiff Met. Our massive thanks to Judith and best wishes for a long and happy retirement. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. You can find us on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.